22 years ago, Nick Smallman, CEO of Working Voices, was a struggling actor. And that's until he started training people in communication skills. That was in the late 90s. Today, Working Voices partners with organizations such as Deutsche Bank, Sony, Vodafone, HSBC, and many others. Now, to service global giants of this kind, Nick has grown his training business from one person to over 50 people across the globe. And that's what today's story is all about with Nick Smallman. This is episode 56 of the Training Business Podcast. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hey, welcome to the show. My name is Mark Garrett Hayes. I'm the podcast host of this show or the host of this podcast. And this is the show for you, for training business owners all around the world. The premise or goal of this episode today and every episode previously is the same. It's to help you to start to grow and to scale your training business. We've an episode every single Thursday dedicated to either time between you and me, or as is the case again this week, we have a guest on the show who wants to share their entrepreneurial journey with you so you can do what they've done. And today's guest is Nick Smallman, as I said before the music. Nick is CEO of Working Voices. He runs a highly successful training business headquartered in London with trainers in APAC, in the US and of course in the UK. Nick gives us the whole story today, why he does what he does, how he's grown the team and won the trust of the kinds of brands I mentioned like Sony and Deutsche Bank and of course on today's show where Working Voices is going next. So let's introduce you to Nick. Nick, hi, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So you are CEO and founder of Working Voices. And you're based in London? Uh, yes. So where does the Working Voices story start? Because it's a very successful company, particularly in the sphere of, of communication and presentation skills. Well, I, I mean, I don't know what other um, business owners, where they business owner stories begin. But for me, um, it was actually one of sort of quiet desperation because back in <laughs> right. 1998, um, I was an un, uh, unemployed actor. Um, I, I went to drama school in the early 90s, which was an amazing experience. I learned so much about human behavior there. I, I trained as a classical actor uh, in London. That's why I came to London. And where did you go? I'm just curious. I went to uh, a drama school called Weber Douglas, uh, which now I think has merged with the Central School of Speech and Drama. Um, but it was very, very traditional. We did a lot of Shakespeare, Chekhov, Arthur Miller, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, the real things that we, we learned to do that were incredibly useful and it turned out transferable were things like voice production, movement, and authenticity. Because obviously, if you want to be a good actor, you've got to be believable. And I think that however much anyone may protest, we're all presenting a version of ourselves uh, when we're not at home with the people who we know the best. So what is that story I, I read on your website about some notice... Um Somewhere, is that right? There's something about some notice you, you came across? <laughs> yeah, um, well, I was, I was at a, a particularly sort of um, low point in my life. Um, I, I, I kind of, I completely run out of money. I was, I was living on somebody's floor 
And I was bemoaning the fact to my, my friend that I was kind of like, you know, where am I going? What am I doing? And she said to me, because I, I sort of said, you know, I, I've, I've done all this training and yet it's not kind of panning out. And that, I think that's the case for a lot of, of young actors. It is, it is a very, very tough profession. And she said, well, you're really good at talking to people. Why don't you do that? And I thought about it overnight and I woke up really early, still thinking about it. And I decided to write a notice. And the notice said, uh, would you like to learn to speak with confidence? And I stuck it in the safe way, as was, uh, in Balham, South London, and left it. And then a couple of days later, I got a call from an Indian lady um, who said, can you come and help my son? And I said, well, uh, well what can I help him with? Um, is, is he looking to interview for a job or whatever? And she said, no, he's eight. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> he does need some help because he's not very confident. And so that's where I started. I started with an eight-year-old boy who literally was shy and was finding it difficult to make connections at school. And actually, it taught me a lot. Uh, and I spent a lot of time, I, I think I had, I think, six to ten sessions with him. And I spent a lot of the time just sitting, asking him gentle questions and watching and observing the way he absorbed information and what made him come to life what made him happy, what concerned him. And over a period of time, I, I kind of worked him out and he trusted me. And um, that was my first of many clients I saw for a couple of years back in the late 90s. And it was it was that, that, that formative experience of just seeing ordinary people. Um, I must have seen, I don't know, about 100 different clients in that time. I was whizzing all over London seeing anybody from truck drivers, housewives, um, stressed business people, you name it. And eventually one of those stressed business people said to me, well, why don't you get yourself a corporate client? And I had absolutely no understanding of the corporate market whatsoever. And I said, well, how do I do that? And she said, well, write to some companies. So me taking that statement literally, I Googled the 50 biggest companies in the world which was a wonderful mistake. <laughs> right. So I wrote to, you know, these vast sort of monolithic organizations and two of them, HSBC and Deutsche Bank, wrote back to me and said, oh, that sounds interesting. Why don't you come in? And so I had a chat with these, these people and they liked what I had to say. And they said, well, why don't you do a seminar? So I, in my naivete, went, what's a seminar? And they said, well, you know, talk to people for three or four hours. Can you do that? And I said, absolutely. But give me six weeks because I'm really busy. Uh, but instead, obviously, of being busy, I, I went away and wrote the seminar. And that seminar became my first course. Um, and I delivered it and they liked it. And they asked me to come back and do another and another and another and within six months, I had three or four corporate clients and was working pretty much every day. And that's kind of how it started. And what gave you the idea to charge a particular amount? I mean, you, you'd no background in this. Your background was acting. How did you know how to put together a package and what to charge for that? Well, I didn't. Uh, I was very, very lucky that the first person I met from HSBC was a lovely man. I still know him today. Um, and when he interviewed me, he said how much are you? This was in the year 2000. And I, and I said, oh, I'm, I'm 25 pounds an hour. 
and he his sort of face dropped. And I said, is that too much? <laughs> and he went, look, look, um, I like what you have to offer, but I'm not going to take you seriously unless you add a zero. Right. And at that point, my head exploded with possibility because as a sort of a, a penniless actor, it's kind of the idea of, of earning 250 pounds an hour was, was extraordinary. So I, that's what I did. And that's what I, you know, that's where I started sort of 20 years ago. And what's interesting with my pricing policy, as I've always asked my clients, what do you think is reasonable? I don't, you know, you, you can phone up competitors and, and or try and work out what they charge. But actually, you just want to say, look, what's a what's a what's a good price? And actually, most of the time, your clients, if they respect you and, and, and like what you have to offer, will say, well, look, I, I would advise this amount. And, and I've always managed to evolve my pricing like that. It's, it's been the best way to do it. But obviously now you run a, a business. How many people in Working Voices at the moment? About 50. Okay. And that's across three locations. So obviously you're not pricing on a on a per hour for yourself. You're running a business. You've got overheads to pay. So the pricing model inevitably has evolved since the early 2000s. Oh, yes. I mean, I mean in the early 2000s, I had one course at an hourly rate. Now we've got 50 courses. Uh across eight themes and we have rates for well we have a very sort of nuanced rate card uh, everything from kind of workshops seminars one-to-one coaching talks webinars e-learning so yes it's it's a it's evolved a huge amount um over the last 20 years and when you say uh, approximately is it 50 programs well the, the way we i mean we, we do bespoke programs um but what we have, we have sort of 50 course areas. So a course would be, storytelling would be a course. Negotiating would be a course. Um, having a difficult conversation would be a course. So we we sort of, all these courses are courses that my clients have asked me to do over the last 20 years. So it's, this, this, it's interesting. I had all sorts of ideas of things I'd like to do. But the problem is if you create a course and no one's interested in buying it, it's been interesting to put together, but it doesn't serve you as a business owner. So especially post the financial crisis, I had to spend a lot of time listening to my clients and finding out specifically what it was that, that their organization needed. And most of the things that they needed were around leadership, um, things like diversity, ethics, productivity, well-being, that kind of thing. Is, is that still the case? Are those... Um products or programs or workshops still the ones which are in demand? Yes. I mean, I, I think our most popular course over the last 18 months, especially in the United States, is Unconscious Bias. It's huge over there. And I think, interestingly, critical thinking is becoming more important. Um, I, I think there was a, a raft of kind of panic around leadership um, after the financial crisis. Uh, certain, I mean, it's, it's always been there, but I think people were particularly distressed about the lack of good leadership uh, that led to the financial crisis. So there was a lot of training of, of would-be leaders and current leaders. But now I think there are people are more concerned about how are my staff feeling? Are they okay? Um, do they manage change well? Um, how are the generations getting on with each other? That kind of thing. And how competitive is the market right now in your view? Do you know, that's really difficult to say. Um, I, I'm not one to really analyze the market. I do know that there are a lot of people who do what I do. And what's interesting is when I started, there were very, very few people who did what I did. Um, I did hear from one of my older um, 
learning learning people that I that I knew from a from a big organization. He told me that the way um, learning works from a consultancy perspective is there are a few very few big beasts that have hundreds of employees and and have an enormous global reach. Then the vast majority are one man bands who um, do great work, but obviously they have limitations of scope. It's very difficult to do programs. And obviously large organizations are reticent to use individuals in case they get ill and don't have backup, et cetera. But apparently, apparently, uh, which I found quite surprising, a company of my size, around 50, he said was relatively rare. I'm not sure if that's the case, but he said actually it, it, it's relatively unusual because obviously we don't have the massive scale, but I like to think we're kind of a boutique firm that can offer very, very specific skills training in very specific areas. Um, and we're not so big that we become impersonal. The thing I've always tried to do is make sure I don't have too many trainers. I would rather offer a quality service with less trainers um, than just try and hire as many people as I possibly can, because then you turn into a kind of a glorified travel agent, and I don't want to do that. So going back to your... Um time you were in the early 2000s just one person how did you go about then expanding the team so you went from one to two to three to four or were there more leaps than that in between uh, yeah it was a gradual process i mean what's really interesting is is a lot of people say you know how do you do these things and i would say a lot of it is i've just been very lucky with the people i've encountered over the last 20 years i mean the first person i brought on was actually a client, um, a guy called John Mabberley. He's a wonderful man. He was head of human resources at a private bank. And he, I, I did some marketing to him. So I mean, very gentle in those days. You sort of phone people up and do a bit of prospecting. And he was very kind to me because he could tell that I was relatively naive. But I think we just got on. And he gave me quite a lot of work to do in his organization. And he then said to me, after me being at that organization for a couple of years, I'm going to retire now. And I thought John had a lot of talent. He was just instinctively very good at understanding people and working with people. So I said to him, I said, what are you going to do? And he said, well, I'm going to play a bit of golf, hang out with my grandchildren. I said, well, you don't want to do that. I said, why don't you just, you know, come and work with me? And so I trained him up and started to introduce him to my clients. And of course, because he he worked at sort of the higher levels of, of banking, he was very comfortable uh, talking to clients. He was very good at what he did. And um, he proved to be a real success. Uh, and then I started to mine the talents of, of, of my drama school friends, who all obviously were very, very good at working with people. They were great facilitators, very charismatic, had real presence. So that was quite easy. Um, and I suppose, I think I, I took my first person on, I was, I was a sole trader from 98 to 2003. And then between 2003 and 2007, I brought on maybe half a dozen people in the UK. And by that time, I started to um, get flown to, to New York, especially to deliver talks and, and programs. And then the credit crunch happened. And so my colleagues said, look, we're not going to fly you there anymore because we're cutting back on air travel. So I thought, oh, dear, um, I need to do something. So I contacted some of my colleagues um, that I knew from drama school in America. And it actually wasn't somebody uh, I knew that I ended up hiring. Um, they didn't, they didn't work quite the right fit, but they introduced me to this really quite extraordinary uh, woman called Jennifer Logue. And Jennifer was uh, quite an accomplished actress, very, very talented. 
um, and she'd worked in all sorts of businesses, but she absolutely knew and understood uh, what it was I wanted. And literally from day one, she kind of grasped that region um, around the scruff of the neck. And she's now, she's the director of the company in America and runs the show. And she's been with me 11 years. What was that like when you realized that it's not about you anymore? You have to grow the team to be able to serve the clients who need you. But yet sometimes in the back of, of people's minds, there's there must be the thought, hang on a sec, I'm trusting my clients to someone. How do I know they're, they're following my secret sauce. They're not looking after their own interests. They've got the interest of the brand at place or it, where it should be close to their heart. How do I know that person's right for me and will actually represent my brand? That is an extremely interesting question. And I don't have a scientific answer for you. Uh, what I can tell you is, I mean, I've interviewed a lot of people, uh, probably north of three to 400 people, I would say, over the last, say, 15 years in, in all around the world. And I'm very happy to talk to anyone who is interested because you never know who you're going to meet. But the people I take on tend to have certain characteristics. Firstly, through the conversation I have with them, are they good listeners? Do I find them interesting? Do I think my clients would like them? Those are sort of really early indicators. Then I need to find out how serious they are and how interested they are in the subject. And I get a feel for their general level of enthusiasm, you know, what books do you read? Is this something that really um, lights your fire? And then there are things about, you know, how it's not just how good a trainer you are, because I've had a couple of instances where I've had excellent trainers who just aren't good consultants. There's a difference because a, a great trainer is fantastic in the room, but they don't turn up on time. <laughs> right, okay. Slight generalization, but fine. <laughs> but, you know, but, you, but you see what I mean? You, you could have someone who's absolutely brilliant in the room who the clients love, but then if they don't turn up on time, your reputation is can be in tatters. So you have to have people who are very, very comfortable being good consultants, good business people, as well as good facilitators. They have to go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other if you're going to succeed. Right. So if we dig into that for a second, the trainer is someone who takes, let's say, your, your material and transfers that they're able to deliver the content, but the consultant is someone who's got a business head on their shoulders and they're thinking, what's it like to be in my client's shoes? How do I know I'm delivering what they need? Are they getting return on investment? Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously a lot of that um, stuff is, is down to me and the relationship. I mean, we've got a senior management team uh, at Working Voices and we spend our time talking to the clients. But I guess my point is, is, can someone be an excellent facilitator? When I say trainer, I mean facilitator. Somebody in the room who is bringing Working Voices material to life. Because we're only as good as our last job and, you know, reputation really matters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But being a good consultant means that you can work on developing new material. Uh, you're punctual. You are thoughtful about the experiences of your clients, especially the people who are organizing the event. A huge amount of logistical work goes into any course. Uh, programs are even bigger. Sometimes they're international. They're flying people in. If someone doesn't show up or is late, it throws off sometimes dozens of people at, at once. And so I, I just, I, I want to make sure when I take people on, when I say they need to be a good consultant, it means that, yes, they need to be a good business person and understand what business people are going through 
as well as being good at delivering the material. So which kinds of organizations are right for working voices? Um, we are organization agnostic. Um, the ones that have been right for us are, are very large multinational financial services organizations, but that's not by design. That's just what happened. It, probably because my first two clients were HSBC and Deutsche Bank. Um, and obviously when pe people in learning and development, they know you, then they go to another organization that's similar, they take you with them. So I would say for the first 15 or so years of Working Voices, all our new work was word of mouth. We didn't really have a marketing department. Um, but I think the point is, is that what I'm looking for in an organization that I want to work with are leaders in the organization who understand the importance of good professional skills. That if you have great professional skills, you are very, very likely uh, to have better relationships with your clients. There'll be better internal communication. There'll be less miscommunication. There'll be a, generally a better culture and atmosphere in the organization. Someone who understands that are the sorts of people I want to work with. But obviously, um, you know, if someone rings us up or sends us an email and says, can you help? We're always uh, willing to, to hear them out, but we won't always take the work. So what is a typical project like with, with you and one of your clients? It's really varied. I mean, normally when we have a new client, we normally start with something small where people want to test us out. So we might uh, do, I don't know, a workshop on a topic like personal brand or emotional intelligence or something like that with a small group of people. They'll assess, they'll get some feedback and they'll say, oh, we like that. And then we'll, we'll do something else. We might do some one-to-one -one coaching or a talk. But sometimes uh, an organization will call us and say, we've got a deeper issue we want to solve. So, for example, a big thing we did um, around sort of 2012, 2013, we worked with a, with a big um, multinational organization who wanted to change the culture of their entire leadership cohort. It was, a, it was you know, 30 plus thousand leaders globally. It was a huge project. And we worked with them for nine months to create bespoke courses that dovetailed with their values. And uh, we're still doing it today. But that's, that, was, that was really, that was great. It was, it was a wonderful process to go through. Most of the trainers got involved on both sides of the Atlantic. And yeah, there was, there was a really a wonderful feeling of, of achievement and that we really made a difference in that organization. And yeah, it was wonderful. How are you then testing for, uh, the, what are the markers that tell you that a project's been successful? Because there are all kinds of ways of evaluating uh, programs. What, what tells you that something's actually worked? In an, in, let's say in a project of that size, which is huge. Well, I, th I think the, the, the obvious test is when managers come to us or the L&D teams and say, I can't believe the change in the people who went on that course. Um, you know, their, their levels of confidence, their ability to explain things, um, their, their overall um, communication ability has kind of really been elevated. Uh, but secondly, if you do it with a group of people who all, all work together, productivity will tend to go up. And, and obviously the most important thing is people say we want more because when I did my first talks at these organizations back in sort of the, the late 90s, early 2000s, I was an unknown quantity. And the only reason I got more work is because people enjoyed it and they wanted more. And so that's on a gut level, especially with things like professional skills, because you're dealing with humans. You, you know, 
feedback for human behavior is not a data point. You, you can't really put it on a spreadsheet. You can give people a score out of five of how much they enjoyed the course and whether you thought the facilitator was any good and all that kind of stuff. But in reality, people can can feel and experience a sense of growth and satisfaction by harnessing a new set of skills. And that's kind of how we do it. There are there are models out there. I mean, I got into trouble sometimes by saying that I think those models are not appropriate for professional skills. And a lot of people, obviously, in corporations love a good model and a good good bit of data. But sometimes it's not appropriate. I think I think it's it's a slightly more holistic um, feedback mechanism that, that one needs to employ. Right. And, and I mean, that sounds like a project which has been extremely successful. Have there been opportunities or projects over the years where you've thought, yeah, that's not for us. We can't really help there. I can't see us making a difference. So we'll, we'll turn this down. Well, firstly, if people ask us to do something that I don't think is absolutely what we do, then I just simply don't do it. Um, because the thing is, uh, there are there are two reasons. Some, sometimes someone asks us to do something and it's something we're actually looking to explore. So we'll say, yes, we'll take that on. We will say straight up, it's not something we do, but it's something actually we've been researching and we're looking into because that's a way for us to grow. But sometimes, I mean, the, the reason that a project will will not go as well is when the client, it's a bit like you're making a movie and the producer just wants to make every decision because they're the money. And the director's going, but that's not how I want this shot to be and that's not how I want the scene to be. And the producer's going, I don't care. I want it to be this way. So sometimes you get clients that are, you know, relatively overbearing and they won't trust you particularly with um, sort of setting the boundaries for how you want the project to go. And that's when, you know, it, it, it doesn't work so well. I mean, we know we're very, very experienced at Working Voices. It's 22 years next year that we've been in business and we have worked with tens of thousands of people all over the world. So we really do know our stuff. So when a client's not really getting that, we know it can be hard work. The, the main reason it's a problem is not that we can't you know, work with the clients and deliver what they want. The main problem is it just takes up a lot of man hours, a lot of time. And people in those kinds of organizations are, are just really interested in data and, and putting everything into very, very prescriptive sort of spreadsheets. And again, it, it, it's sort of antithetical to the way I think we need to be working. And you have operations, as we've discussed, in the UK, in the States, and in APAC. What, what's a, what are the challenges of running an organization across multiple time zones, notwithstanding the cultural differences and, and the differences of the clients in those jurisdictions? I suppose as we've grown, we've had to spend a lot of money bringing people together. That's kind of really important. Um, it's it's very difficult sometimes when um, you're you're trying to um, involve everybody, and that person lives in Hong Kong or lives in Osaka or lives in California. So we used to have offsites um, that were, that, but they became prohibitively expensive. You imagine trying to get fifty people in one place, and you're a small company. So we do a lot of teleconferencing. We we have a lot of a uh, lot of sort of online meetings where we keep sharing information. We make sure that's very important. But also as an organisation, we spend a lot of time socialising, going out with each other, eating together. You know, whenever I go to New York, I'll take the team out, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we we remain close. 
And I think when you're when you're delivering skills and interpersonal skills, especially, it's important to remain close and to, you know, to know who you're working with, because a lot of the time I'll, my, my people work together. I'm going to lend you my time machine uh, to go back to, well, 22 years, 21 years to 98. If you could do things differently, um, knowing what you know now, having learned what you've learned in the interim, what would you do differently? And I'm thinking of someone who perhaps is, is certainly a younger version of me and is thinking, I'd like to start something. I'd like to grow a business which helps people. It's in the training business. Where would I start? So I'm, I'm off to a good start. I'm not, you know, making, um, inevitably we make mistakes. That's part of the learning curve. But what would be the shortcuts to, to do this quicker and better? Okay, well, you see, but I think there's two separate questions. Would I change anything? No. The reason why I wouldn't change anything is I only think you can really enjoy the highs when you've had the lows. Yeah. And the whole process of, of setting up and growing working voices has been like any business. It's been full of highs and lows. And although I've been incredibly stressed sometimes, and it really has taken a lot out of me, I don't think I'd change it because it's been an incredible experience. And I think life is about experience. It's just not about being happy all the time. It is about genuinely going through things and learning so from that perspective i wouldn't change anything however if i was advising a a young person getting into the learning business the most important thing when you start do i really want to do this is this just a way to make money or is this something i'm really really passionate about i think you've got to be really passionate about human behavior or coaching or whatever in order to want to do this it shouldn't be just this is i just want to make money the second thing is a way of sussing out whether that's true is how much do you read? I don't think you can be really good at this unless you're very widely read. You have to understand how humans behave. You need to be able to you know, pick out reference points in your head. You need to be able to relate to people from whatever walk of life they're from. So reading is incredibly important. Then I think it's just the basics. Have a good accountant. Um, Having a good accountant was very important in my early days. It actually turned out to be my dad, but he sort of gave me a lot of advice. I've now got a fantastic financial director who who makes all those decisions for me, and that's been incredibly important. Um, I didn't really need a lawyer at the beginning because everything was sort of done on a handshake, but nowadays there's a lot of corporate governance and compliance, et cetera, if you're working with a large organization. So I would worry... For a small business owner, if they don't have a good lawyer who can look at contracts, um, I think that's going to be a problem. Yeah. Advice given to me a couple of times um, by people I've talked to is they've said, um, I, 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 I'm looking for people who've made mistakes. I'm looking for people who've burnt their fingers and know how to correct things. I'm looking for people who've been bruised. Um, not battered, but bruised, and they know how to right themselves. Because if, if I've got someone in a room full of people who are older than them, um, they need to be able to relate to them. They need to know the kinds of challenges they have. Perhaps they've been sacked. Perhaps they've been through some kind of recession. But people like that are people who are more credible. They're more authentic. They're more relatable. And they're the kinds of people whom delegates will look at and say, that person's like me. So what they're saying is not just something they've learned from some kind of training material, but they've got anecdotes above and beyond the course material. Yes, they're a real person. And that might sound like self-evident, but it's not. I, I've, I've seen a lot of facilitation in my time with people who seem ever so nice, but I don't really care about them. And one of the things I look for in my trainers is relatability and ability. 
Uh, yes, it does matter. I think, you know, one has to be vulnerable. One of the reasons I think when I'm delivering a, a seminar or a course that people like what I have to say is because I don't try and pretend that everything's great. I, I can relate completely to the to the uh, struggles and trials and tribulations that, that regular humans have. Um, but I think maybe what separates me and some of my colleagues from others is, is we are simply more highly skilled because that's the, the world that we work in. We've probably got a background where we've developed those skills, hence the theatre or some kind of entrepreneurial business. But ultimately, it, it's that humanity, relatability and vulnerability that, that absolutely matters. And if it's not something if that is not you, you, I think it would be more difficult to, to build really deep relationships with clients. And that's ultimately what it's all about. Because if you don't build those really deep relationships, you're not going to expand your your sphere of influence. Is it tricky finding people like that then? People whom you can say, okay, you've got the skills, maybe you've been through acting school, um, you sound great, and you know the material, you've done the work, but I need you to be a bit more than just the trainer, just the consultant. There's got to be something, some kind of, yeah, magic ingredient. Is it difficult to find people um, like that, who you feel, yeah, I, I'm comfortable with that person representing my brand in front of my clients. Well, I, I, I'd say you've just got to be quite diligent about it. Let's say I've taken on about 10% of the people who I've interviewed. You know, I'm to wait for uh, someone who I think is special. And I think all the trainers that I use, I think are special. Um, and, and But only special, you know, in the in the very specific band that I, that I, that I see the my version of what a good trainer is. So where do you think that the market's going? Um, you're in business 22 years next year. Um, things have changed in, in even in 10 years, five years. Um, what do you think are the, the trends on the horizon? Well, I think, I think it's technology is, is obviously driving a lot of stuff. There is still, let me just say for anyone listening, um, who is in any doubt putting a human being in a room with another human being is still the best form of training. But obviously, um, a lot of organizations want to save money and they want to, I imagine they want a better scope. So things like webinars, uh, e-learning, they're becoming incredibly popular. I think, I think webinars are absolutely fine. I mean, it's, it's just a fact of modern training life that people want the convenience of a webinar. Um, I think subject matter wise, I think, I suppose there's been a, a learning revolution because now because of the internet, because of social media, you can learn anything at any time, anywhere. So the thing that's going to differentiate you is your expertise. And I suppose that's something that Working Voices has just by virtue of the fact we've been doing this a long time. We have experience. Um, and I certainly for senior leaders, they want a person in the room with them who's done this before. So we kind of score there. But I think, I think, you know, these things go through trends. I mean, I remember before the financial crisis, everyone was interested in personal brand. And then before that, everyone was interested in emotional intelligence because of Daniel Norman's book. After the financial crisis, it was all leadership. Now it's kind of well-being because the people are realizing that a lot of their employees are deeply anxious uh, for a whole host of reasons, and they want a way of keeping them happy at work. So I think, I think well-being is going to be quite a big big thing coming up and resilience training as well. That seems to be in demand right now. Absolutely. But there's also something very interesting about well-being. When people talk about well-being, they talk about things like, 
uh, sleep, meditation, uh, exercise, and, and kind of what you eat. That's all fine. But I think a really, really crucial and enormous part of well-being is that feeling of connectedness to other human beings. Um, there's a lot of isolation, especially in cities, uh, funnily enough, sort of rather ironically. I think in London, there's something like 40% single occupancy. I think a lot of people uh, struggle to connect. And even though they're at work with lots of people, it doesn't necessarily mean they are connecting in a meaningful way. So I think one of the things that I'm looking into at the moment is the way organizations can find more profound ways for their employees to feel genuinely part of something, not just some kind of technical, functional individual, but rather something, some kind of process where there's more heart. Yeah, that's a tough one. It is a tough one. And, and I think society is changing so rapidly. Um, and I, I, you know, corporations, some corporations are moving relatively fast and, and others are struggling to keep up. But the thing is, obviously, uh, employees will vote with their feet. They'll go to organizations that appreciate that well-being is an important thing. And the organizations that don't will struggle to attract top talent. That's that kind of glass door effect where uh, people <laughs> leave not so nice comments about you as an employer on, on the website. Yeah, absolutely. It's a thing. I mean, this is this is a sort of the wonderful, empowering, democratizing um, idea of the Internet. I mean, I think it's the greatest invention ever. Obviously, it has a deeply disturbing and dark side. But what the, 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 the ability to spread knowledge and communication as far and wide as it does, I just think is the most extraordinary thing. Uh, and it's completely changed the way certainly the first world uh, communicates. But as humans, we need to master uh, communication online a lot better than we do. And obviously with all the disinformation and misinformation and post-truth and fake news and the amount of confusion that's out there, that's a real problem going forward. And I do think some of that bleeds into kind of the workplace where people feel a little bit tribal. Brexit's a great example of that. I mean, you know, you could say, are you conservative or are you Labour? And people will be sort of, it's fine, but are you leave or remain? And people get quite angry. And, and you know, when you bring that into the workplace, that's that's kind of nuts traumatic it well it is it is and and you know everyone likes to feel part of something a sense of belonging is one of the most most powerful trends that um a human needs that that sense of belonging and, and we're encouraged through our online behavior to join certain tribes yes that is the key word tribes yeah and uh, I don't really know what we do about it because the internet's not going anywhere. I think we need to become more sophisticated in the way we manage the information that we receive. I think that's the deal. Yeah, our brains have to evolve. Speaking of, of workplaces, what's next for you and Working Voices, let's say over the next five years, although that's a long-term time frame, and how will you know when you get there, Nick? That's an interesting uh, question. I mean, I'm not saying I make it up as I go along, because I don't. Well, you can you can tell us if you do. <laughs> I'd believe you. I mean, I do. <laughs> well, I think the point is, is, is you've got to have a strategy. But I, what I would say is, whatever strategy, no, I've got a strategy for the end of this year. I'm beefing up my consultancy arm. Um, I am trying to create a gold standard webinar experience. I mean, this is all generated by listening to our clients, etc. But the most important thing, you must have the flexibility to change rapidly which is why i don't want my organization to be any more than 50 people because i want to be able to change quickly i want to have relationships that are strong enough in any part of my organization to say okay 
we're now going to do this. And they've got to be able to trust me that I've thought about it. I know what I'm doing. But also, you've got to decentralize the decision-making process. You've got to have people around you who can do that. So I think over the next five years, we are going to drift, of course, towards a more tech and screen-driven communication experience. But what I'd like to do is I would like to work with people to help them manage their online communication lives. Because I think especially for Generation Z or Z, those people under about 23, 24, they don't know any different. You know, uh, some, I, mean, I was thinking, um, you know, you grow up in your, in your early 20s and all of your life, if you had a question, you could type it into a screen and you get the answer. I mean, how? That's amazing. And of course, that never happened when I was a kid. And, and you've got these screens that you have with you all the time that tell you stuff that can do so many amazing things. That's great. And, and in theory, that is, that's, you know, that's, that's evolution, isn't it? However, there are drawbacks. You know, we've seen these awful pictures of young people kind of sitting in pubs and they're all looking at their screens and not talking to each other. <laughs> it's true. Every airport, every train station. <laughs> because there is a level of addiction, the FOMO, the fear of missing out and all that kind of stuff. And from a communication perspective, although we are evolving very rapidly and I think young people are absorbing huge amounts of information in a way that we never had the opportunity to do. I mean, well, we had the Encyclopedia Britannica if we could get hold of it. Now they've got Google and it's instant. The problem for young people is I think there is a huge amount of knowledge uptake but not necessarily the level of understanding. Because things are moving so fast, people don't necessarily dedicate themselves to understanding. Now, of course, to be a great communicator, you've got to be able to understand other people. Real depth, real context. So in five years, I think that is going to be a very interesting topic. I think you're going to see the residual kind of, the residual outcomes of, screen communication and how we manage that with human communication because i do think people are getting quite isolated yes and you can see that in a lift you you come into the elevator in the morning and people's heads are down they're craned over their screen very few people make some sort of effort to greet you or to acknowledge your presence so uh, yeah i i would say there's a strong need for some kind of humanization of technology so that we're not we're not it doesn't just we're not serving it it's serving us and that's yet to happen i completely agree and also there if there's a very very strong wave going in this direction there's nothing wrong with trying to push the wave back because mm. you know we are human beings after all and the best things about us are the most human things about us and we live in a world now where efficiency is king and everything's got to be recorded and algorithms and data points etc but it, it does not take the fun out of life and i think one of the most fun things to do is to talk to other people it's such a simple thing but when we talk to other people we come alive and that's the same whether we're doing it socially or doing it at work that sense of collaboration and achievement through working with other people it's it's a, it's a truly marvelous thing and i don't think that's me being romantic i think that's just a fact well on the note of uh, talking to other people thank you very much for being our guest this morning, Nick, and thanks for your time. You're extremely welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Nick, for being our guest on the show this week, for taking time out of your Friday evening to speak to us here on the show. 
And my sincere thanks to you, our listeners, for your time again tuning in. This is a Thursday, or at least this is the day that uh, we publish the podcast episode every single week. And I'd like to thank you for your time in tuning in wherever you are, in the car, in the train, on the plane, uh, from work, going to work, you could be in the gym. But you know that every single Thursday, there's an episode of the podcast here for you, irrespective of whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or another platform. And there are many out there where you'll find the show, because this show would not be the same without you. This is the show that serves you as training business owners, and therefore it's a pleasure and privilege to hear from you and to know exactly the kinds of content that will help you with your training business. Now, I've mentioned a couple of platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And of course, they're the platforms where you will find an episode every single Thursday. So we'd love you to subscribe to the show because those platforms, the technology on those platforms will, of course, remind you when we upload a fresh episode. Now, we're still working on the website. My apologies for the delay in that. But you can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, and Instagram. And of course, we're tweeting about episodes, current episodes, past episodes, and future episodes, as well as competitions, because we've got lots of signed uh, books, signed copies of books from guests who've been on the show, and we're anxious to give those away, put them in your hands. And there are, of course, uh, competitions around the corner. We'll be announcing those. So it's important to us that if you are interested in getting your hands on one of those books or any of the prizes uh, we'll be giving away as part of competitions in the future, that you subscribe via one of the social media channels, which will help you to keep up to date. So keep an eye out for those competitions. Engage with us of course, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And we'll be in touch through those channels in the meantime. Until next Thursday, of course, we have another episode next Thursday. Have a great training week. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Go to trainingbusiness.com and subscribe right now to be notified of great competitions, upcoming VIP episodes, and amazing special offers to help you succeed in your training business. See you next time.